Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am joined today by Mr. Alex Pillow. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Tom. Mr. David Noble. Hi there, Tom. And Mr. Rob Duncan. Welcome, Hi, Rob. Tom. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and I, as ever, am Tom Richardson. So this is a bit of a continuation of the uh, End of the World podcast, where we um, we, we kind of summed up 2020 <laughs> at 10 to midnight. We thought we'd, we'd introduce uh, a quarterly roundup, and this is the first of them. And we've not necessarily settled upon the format yet. We're, we're kind of working it all out on the fly, but we will discuss some of the... Um, events of the last quarter and things that are on our mind it's fairly unscripted and we're just going to see where it goes so where shall we start gentlemen well you want to start with the uh with the report that came out last week ah yes you were quite vocal about this on linkedin <laughs> yeah well i mean actually i mean I, I i was quite late to it in fact i mean it was the um it was the reuters news article that i saw first and i was a bit disappointed actually because i missed the launch of the report RegTech Associates had done a had done a launch for the report, which I think would have been quite interesting because that's where, you know, these comments that have been reported, you know, are are you know and and attributed, you know, have been attributed to the Bank of England were were apparently made um, in right. that, that event. But um, and so just so that people listening know, in case they missed it, this was a report produced, I think, by the RegTech Associates in association with the City of London. Um, about how, uh, as I understand it, RegTech could be a differentiator for for London as a financial services hub uh, moving forward. Absolutely, very much so, very much so. And what, and I say, what caught my eye was the headline: Bank of England sells firm to promote own RegTech <laughs> products. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, hmm, okay. What is it that you think people like me have been trying to do for the last 15 years? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, you know, I found that quite interesting. But I guess, you know, when you dive into the report, obviously what, you know, what is being uh, yeah, effectively, you know, that's a bit of a, you know, a headline to try and grab some attention, I guess, because what they're saying is, look, don't rely on the regulator. So, you know, the regulator can't sort of start coming in and saying you have to do this you have to use that you have to use the other they never have done and and i suppose in fairness you know they they, they you know they can't really be looked to to sort of start suggesting that certain solutions should be used and certain not but um but the report itself is quite interesting i mean i i've i've skimmed you know i've, I've skimmed through all of it you know so i haven't got a lot of it in detail but you know i mean it brings out you know apart from the disappointing you know thrust that you know, they suggest they suggest that people like us aren't doing our jobs. Um, you know, they do talk about, you know, what are the barriers? You know, they highlight the barriers to adoption. Um, and, you know, of course, it's people, you know, think things that you guys and, and some of our listeners, I suppose, will be will be more than familiar with things like, you know, long sales cycles, um, you know, supposed lack of budgets, um, hurdles put in place by you know, the existence of legacy technology, you know, all of these things that just prevent an organization kind of moving, moving forward in that way. But the thing that sort of really, really struck me, and I suppose it's relatively obvious, I guess, but, um, well, two things I might, I might say. One is that, you know, a lot of this seems to be at board level. 
the report suggests is that actually the reluctance is right up at the top. It's not further down. You know, there's the sort of practitioners further down who would do things differently if they if they had the, the backing. Um, and it seems that it's sort of at a board level that there's a reluctance to kind of really commit to sort of, you know, some reg tech solutions. Um, but then again, drilling into that is quite interesting because the, the, the report talks about how um, some institutions, like, and I'm assuming, you know, the larger financial institutions are perhaps sometimes reluctant to go with smaller reg tech players because they're worried about, you know, the ability of that organization to deliver, you know, its size, you know, whether it can actually come through and do what it says it's going to do. Um, which again, understandable, you know, if it's a small organization, you sort of think, well, hang on a second, can these guys really, really support us? Um, but on the flip side, um, they criticize and call out the bigger reg tech players, um, who I suppose are sort of names that we're, that we're familiar with, who sort of gobbled up, you know, some historical players. Um, and they criticize them for not being nimble enough. You know, apparently these these larger organizations charge in there saying, yeah, we can do this, we can do that. And then, of course, it turns out that ultimately they can't do that. Um, and uh, and I thought that was very interesting. So you're sort of left between a rock and a hard place. You know, they don't want to adopt the, the solutions of the smaller players for fear that that smaller player might collapse under the under the pressure. But they, you know, they, they find that the bigger players aren't nimble enough. So, um, so yeah, and, that, and that's probably why, you know, probably inertia, right? I guess, you know, then, then, then they're sort of stuck and that's when nothing moves forward. I think you could open up quite a lot off the back of the report, couldn't you? And you could, you know, the, the argument that the larger players, uh, reg tech players aren't nimble enough, but the smaller ones are too unfounded or they haven't built enough trust in the marketplace for a larger firm to... Um, kind of implement I think in the end you know there's there, there's lots of things that can solve those problems whether it's um, improvement to product whether it's things you can do in the sales cycle but I think it's quite ridiculous to expect that the regulator would be going around kind of rubber stamping your product in the first mm -hmm. place anyway and I don't think any of us even expect that whatsoever so I think it's just a it's a good headline, really, to raise awareness around uh, RegTech Associates and the report that's coming out. It's never been the case, as, as Rob said, so it's not a change. It's it <laughs> ever has been. But uh, the one that made me laugh, I think Rob mentioned most of the things it said. The report said the use of RegTech was held back by long procurement cycles, slow decision making inside firms, constraints from existing technology and lack of funds. But the lack of funds one, I was like, well, they're already spending the money. Just mm. on the wrong things, mm. lack of funds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it might not. There might not be a specific line item in the budget that says regtech, but yeah, I don't think that needs to be. It can just be under compliance, mm. and then you go and use it more intelligently. Um, but yeah, it's one of these things where it's maybe in, if you're not living and breathing this stuff every day, or, or if maybe you're a CFO of some, you know, any size financial. Um, and you know you've got to spend some money on this stuff it maybe it's interesting as a report but i don't think it tells us <clears throat> those that are, are working with it every single day mm. um the only other issue i took is it said regtech is part of britain's wider so-called fintech sector and i was like i consider them two very different things they feed off each other but i don't see why we, we're obsessed with bundling it all together 
Well, there's actually, there's a bit, um, I forget where it is, but I, I think it's, and I don't want to misquote somebody, but I think it was from the F, someone at the FCA is quoted as saying, sort of um, regretting having made that similar mistake uh, in the past. It's way, way down. Um, yeah. I can't remember where it is, but they say, you know, we regret having previously bundled fintech and regtech together because we realised that obviously they're, you know, they are they are two very different things. So um, two very different markets. You know, a lot <clears> of the fintech is very much aimed at the consumer, whereas yeah, it's totally completely aimed at to be, well, almost completely. The only other, any other thing I don't know what you guys think about this is obviously it's not their job to rubber stamp or approve any single or selection of of vendors in the space. But one thing I would say is it it should be at a certain point once the technology is widely available, you know, from multiple vendors, there, there's a, a competitive market. I think the minimum standards of what's expected should then come up. So let's say there's a manual process that takes two weeks to do arbitrary number, but there's a technology that allows you to do that thing in a day and it's widely available and it's not totally cost prohibitive. I don't think it's unreasonable regulators said we now expect all firms under our jurisdiction to be using some version of, of the, or, or to complete this task in a, a quicker time frame than we previously did. You mm. think that would be a fair role? I, I don't see that all the time. I think there's so much guidance, but so little. Um, you I think know. that's less less about the regulator pushing for investment in regtech, isn't it? And it's more focused really on the internal systems and controls, the the processes within you know the firm itself. And I think I think they'd be quite right in uh, setting an expectation that if there are tools out there that enable you to behave in a more compliant manner and it's not totally cost prohibitive then why wouldn't you be uh, implementing that yeah. and the one that in my little world sort of screening the bit that blows my mind is people not doing ongoing monitoring like the daily check that else that's been available for years and years and there are multiple vendors that can do a version of it there's not really a reason other than you didn't go on and do it or you couldn't be bothered <laughs> and so you stuck with your annual refresh or you know, and you called it a risk-based approach, but it's not really, is it? Because you're unaware of the risk by definition. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that is stuff like that. I'm sure in everyone's niche, there'll be things where you go, that's common practice, but firms haven't all caught up yet. I wouldn't mind seeing mm. the regulator maybe without talking about a specific firm. Sort of say, look, certain technology is now expected to be used or, or the standard is there because we know technology could enable you to do this. There's no reason to do things manually in some cases. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing, I guess, I, I mean, that sort of thing that stuck with me was that, was that the issue is at a board level. And um, obviously, you know, that, that, that's, you know, puts a challenge out there. Right. Cause I mean, we, you know, that means that sort of people in our roles, you know, we've, we've just got to aim, aim even higher, I guess. Um, you know, if, if, if the people we're talking to or we feel the message isn't getting through or the benefits of what we're offering, you know, aren't, aren't being fully appreciated or all the people we're talking to is they're saying, look, I love it. I love it, but I can't get it through. You know, I, then, you know, we need to think about, you know, how do our companies, how do the guys that we work for, you know, how, um, you know, how do we, how do we get that message out at a, at a, at a, at a higher level so that, so, you know, board members, spot that and take it on board i suppose that's the that's the challenge
the other question is why, why has this come out so is it is it the reg tech companies that are uh that are asking that regulators start to not rubber stamp that but start to push them more because they're not seeing enough engagement um with the regulated firms and is that because well it's becoming quite a crowded market now there are a lot of reg tech mm -hmm. companies that, that are in the marketplace and so is it just more of a case that perhaps there isn't enough to go around and therefore actually you've got this struggle that's now going on is that you've got reg techs that are struggling to set themselves apart from each other they're struggling to get time uh, with senior uh, decision makers and perhaps even you know board level members within some of these firms and they feel that perhaps it would be better if there was a, a, a message coming from the regulator to support their efforts in the days where there was only you know yeah. You sort of 10 years ago there was far less competition in the marketplace and so you could more likely have more senior conversations yeah yeah i mean the the um the uh the the city of london corporation i think their their line is, is basically that you know they are as a body they are calling for the reg tech sector to be um better supported you know i, I guess you know they see it you know they see it day in day out and they see it as a real <clears throat> you know a, a, a real part part of the you know the makeup of, of the city of london and, and and what and what makes it what it what it is and they 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 i guess feel that it's not being you know sufficiently leveraged um in in that sense but i think you're right i think i think it is the it, i think it's the reg techs themselves or reg tech businesses themselves that said well look what would be helpful is if you know uh, a regulator regulator just tells you to buy my product right you can imagine they've maybe offered some sort of like accreditation or something so it's a barrier to entry for anyone new coming in who won't be able to yeah. sell until they get to that point but they can't get there without clients and it's mm. just building a moat around whatever business you've you've built up don't feel that's necessary i think like we spoke about in the um end of 2021 really like you said, they're a really crowded marketplace, people struggling for time, got to cut through somehow. And actually probably what we need to happen is just normal capitalism and a bunch of firms will eventually die away, which is, is mm. sad for people involved, but is is the way of these things. And we <clears> should then be left with some new ones that are great um, and are going to be here for years to come, and and but not not the 800 or whatever is now on the directory. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah. they actually, yeah, I mean, they show in terms of... Um, number of new reg techs found in each year collapses in about 2019 i guess well sorry no the, the peak the peak is 2016 and it's been downhill since then yeah um page 18 if you've got it if you're looking at it um there's a, there's a graph there which shows it going up and up and up and up and then it goes off a cliff so you know and they and they suggest that's because they see the market um the industry maturing you know, as, as, as sort of there's been some acquisitions and that um, or it could be the VCs again. No, I've already got one. Thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Although it doesn't seem like there's any um, shortage of money being put into RegTech still. So I haven't got the sort of industry wide stats with me. I probably should have done. But but we, we are aware of a number of uh, RegTech firms raising large sums of money again um, at the beginning of this year. Springs to mind since Blockchain and everything is uh, is still so topical, but Chainalysis did another hundred million, didn't they? I think earlier this year. So, so what's less than six months after they raised a hundred million 
tail end of last year. Um, so I think that valued them at, at sort of $2 billion or something. I mean, that's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's huge valuation on something that is, yeah, I don't know when you'd get the return on that if you were to, to buy it outright. Obviously, it's a theoretical valuation, but um, yeah, I don't know how long it would take, but certainly with with the way some of the traditional finance firms now bringing in some sort of crypto offering like tools like Chainalysis and Elliptic who are the main two I don't I think it's a two-player market for what they do tracking yeah. the, the various um, uh, blockchains of the different uh, cryptocurrencies yeah if it's going to be one of only two players and everyone's going to do some of this then you'd imagine it will keep growing it's just sort of to what extent um, yeah. <clears throat> I mean they're uh, riding two waves there we've got crypto and we've got reg tech <laughs> well, it's um, a good bet, right? Um, but to go to the regulator point, they don't need to go and approve these firms, but they probably, and they are bringing in regulation around cryptocurrencies, which then drives the market opportunity. So it's just making sure that you know, the things being used are good regulation that actually makes things better rather than just being regulation for the sake of regulation. And then these firms can build to solve that. But they're well positioned because I don't know of any others other than those two um that understand that 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 subject matter as well as they do yeah no i'm not aware of any other as you've got more and more uh, investment now into cryptocurrencies and um, you know more and more firms are looking for more stability there that there's bound to be needs now for things like you know transaction monitoring and things of the like that you know we would typically see in the traditional banking sector and so around it begs the question then what what the, what's the difference right mm. yeah so i saw I, obviously we have the coinbase um ipo uh which valued the company it was it was it 76 billion or 86 billion i can't remember it, it put them in and around the top 10 banks in the world or something <laughs> crazy uh, obviously they're not a bank but um in terms of a comparison point it put them put them right up there and i saw actually elliptics founder post about that yeah, but obviously it's in his interest to promote, yeah, everything, the future is crypto because um, it's vested interest. But again, valuations in these days, we do see these things go up and then, and then come down fairly quickly. So probably wait and see, but hey, good, good luck to them and well done to the people that have built that, that company. It's obviously, it's never easy to do in any sector, but um, yeah, a watcher of interest, but <laughs> probably won't have huge amounts of exposure myself yeah well i see i think i i was going to voice an opinion there but maybe it's safest to avoid any backlash to just not not offer anything <laughs> <laughs> I, I, on, on safer ground verif um the identity verification they they just fundraising i saw last week or announced it last week 69 million um euros i think rather dollars so near that 100 million dollars i guess um should be interesting because they coming out of eastern europe as opposed to sort of london or san fran where you know on fido and gmeo the sort of two standard bearers um in that market have, have come from those sort of traditional tech hubs but it's see quite a lot um in sort of baltic states eastern europe because they've got the developers they've always had the developers but actually people start things from there now as opposed to coming over to london to do it um, and being able to access the finance so that could make you know, anytime you have 
a freeway rather than a two-way competition, it's probably going to be good for, for customers, you would have thought. It should drive drive things on and, and, and make things more competitive price-wise. But um, again, we'll have to see, but no shortage of money, as you said, coming into to the sector. <clears throat> and actually, talking about uh, consolidation, we also the company AML Right Source were the guys that acquired Arachnis fairly mm. recently. Uh, and mm. I think they uh, have also acquired a German firm called Passcon. And uh, AML Right Source might be on some of our radar anyway, because one of the uh, senior guys there is uh, Arun Banerjee, formerly of Dow Jones and mm. Exiger. And so they're obviously on a uh, on the acquisition path, aren't they? So it's interesting to see um, what happens there. Especially with them, they're more of a, a certain you know, people service. It's more of an outsourcing thing rather than a traditional tech player. But they're buying bits of tech. So are they going to try and become a tech player, or are they going to use that tech to do what they do better themselves and just improve that service? No. You won't know unless you're in that boardroom, but um, it's a different route. You know, if everyone's been thinking, oh, I've got to either get bought by a bigger reg tech firm or or IPO, maybe there's a third option, which is you you go into some sort of other combined service um, as people think about potential exits. Well, that's interesting, right? How has that worked in the past? Because um, what was the name of the company where they uh, they they made a lot of noise about doing that. They acquired Alacra and then Hyperos, I think they were called. Mm, mm. Um, can anyone remember the name? O- Opus. Opus, yeah. Oh, yes. And that, so there was a lot of chat about how that was going to be a, um, you know, the next big GRC company, wasn't it? And it was essentially born of multiple acquisitions and st- stitching them together, or so the, the theory went. But that sort of unwound and never was, as far as mm. I can see. Mm. Um, well, I think it's the sti- stitching them together that's tough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's it, I yeah. Know. But you, you see it in firms like um, SAI Global, you know, they've made lots of acquisitions over the years, and they've got, got multiple platforms now, I'd imagine, following some of that. But there's one trust in the US who seems to make an acquisition yeah. every fortnight. I mean, they're just constantly adding to that business all the time. So it'd be interesting to know how they actually, like you say, how, how they knit these uh, solutions together. Yeah, it's like Rob said, you know, it all comes down to the execution. As a rugby captain used to have, you'd say a bad plan done well, it's better than a good plan done badly. Um, so just stick with, stick with mm-hmm. the, what I've told you is the basic message, um, even if it's wrong. Um, probably be there or thereabouts anyway. So I think that's... that's what everyone can watch and if the you know sales in the sector then obviously decide where you want to be and if you're buying this stuff then be aware of the wider thing but obviously you've got to focus on the the day you know today rather than what product's going to be available in two years from this vendor it kind of doesn't mm. matter for you until it's actually available i think they're going back to the discussion we had about the report you know the the uh, criticism that you know, banks may not want to buy into very small organisations um, where you do have an organisation that is clearly on a trajectory for increasing its capabilities and, and kind of moving across the reg tech spectrum, then you know, that surely should help to give some of that comfort to those organisations that you know, you're not a one-trick pony, that you actually are focused on solving you know, multiple problems uh, within the organisation and that you've got a 
strategy to do that, um, whether it's through organic product development or through acquisition, you know, it's all there. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, I mean, there's two, I mean, I, I think one of them we spoke about, I mean, in, the, in these bigger organizations, of course, is what's going on at um, Relex, you know, because they put, they put LNRS and Acuity yes. together. The and worst course, kept secret. I, we, that is relevant to this quarter, isn't it? Because, of course, everyone on the planet knew that last quarter. Anyway, did they, Tom? Did everyone they? on the planet knew it last year, but actually it only got officially announced, didn't it, this year? Everyone's yeah. surprised it wasn't done five, ten years ago. It's yeah. <laughs> the biggest surprise. <clears throat> Although yeah. it seemed to work well for them, as far as I can tell, if we compare that to um, some other uh, large organisations' acquisition sprees that, that happened maybe a few years ago. Um, I don't know. Do we want to mention company names? But but that we we've seen how that could go badly. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. I mean, the 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 the, the relics thing. I mean, certainly, you know, the the, the story in, internally. And I mean, you know, absolutely, you know, no, was that you know why why would they? I mean, both both businesses were growing at sort of double digit growth every year. They got they you know more or less they got two bites at every cherry. Um, you know, going into uh, you know different banks and, and, and what have you. So, so why would why would they change it now? I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, and I, this I don't know is sort of why now? Um, why why have they decided to to bring the two businesses together now? And of course, now you know they, there's there's a great deal of duplication across the product sets. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. Well, what stays, what goes? How how does that all? Um, you know, how does that all bottom out? But, but I mean, for me, the more interesting one, and you probably can't say anything about it, Alex, we don't want to, is, um, is the BVD RDC one. Um, mm. Because, you know, I mean, that, that creates an interesting, um, an interesting mix of both, you know, corporate structure information and risk data. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and a lot will hang, I guess, on how well that's put together. Um, you know, David and the, the companies that David and I respectively worked for arguably weren't put together very well. Um, so, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, no, I obviously can't say too much because it's for the corporate machine to, to say, but um, I think they've released already, you know, first version of that is plugging in, they've plugged in the RDC capability to BBD product compliance catalyst. And that's, you know, something that's already in the market, already got customers, already doing very well. There'll be various other iterations on that. And with all of the other things Moody's do, there's loads more data and other things that we can bring together. So the strategy, I think, is fairly obvious to anyone following the sector. But I read sort of some of the other acquisitions mergers that have gone on over the past year since that the RDC acquisition was announced in January 2020 as being a response to that some of the bigger beasts going, oh, okay, there's another big beast now here. We've got to do something to position ourselves. So I'm sort of, that's why I'm reading it, but I'm biased to that because I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that's what they do because mm -hmm. um, it will make it a lot more fun. Um, but may maybe I'm wrong and everyone's going to do this anyway. It was just who got their press release out first. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> what's, um, what's going on with Dow Jones? There's been any 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 news out Dow Jones mergers acquisitions anything like that? Did anyone anyone heard anything? Any gossip? Nothing nothing that I know of. No, no it's just people speculating like we are now. Going something's got to happen because everyone else has had something happen. <laughs> uh, but maybe maybe there isn't. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Um, okay, before we get ourselves in trouble, 
on the agenda, the Regulatory Genome Project. And I, I, this is on our little list of things that maybe we want to talk about. And I thought David might know a thing or two about this. So I think it's a really interesting development. I think that it will be, a lot of people will be watching this to see uh, to the extent to which they're able to essentially map the, you know, most of the world's uh, um, regulation. And if you look at what we've seen over the last you know, 10, 15 years from the advent of uh, companies like Complinet, who were kind of pulling together the output from regulators and putting commentary and analysis around that and feeding that into a lot of banks. And that was, of course, acquired by Thomson Reuters, who then further developed the feed of that information. And today we've got lots of organisations that are looking in very specific areas doing this. Um, but the challenge that I see at the moment and, and what a lot of the US banks in particular are looking to do is to build out these regulatory inventories internally where they essentially want to replicate all of the rules and regulations that uh, affect them that they're, that they're obligated to and start to connect that up to internal processes and documents and uh, systems etc. But the challenge is in how you actually get all of that content because each regulator has its you know its own way of putting that information out its own cadence some of them you know are easier to work with than others you know some are putting out pdf documents some are uh, not particularly uh, well designed uh, when it comes to actually bringing digital information into the bank so i think if you've got a program now that will look at how they address on mass then across all of those global uh, regulators a way of being able to create you know, digital machine readable regulation then that's got to be a huge huge step forward um, in the way that banks will consume that content I think the challenge is is that what what does this project look like or what is this project proposing to do that is different to what a lot of the organizations uh, already you know those reg techs in the marketplace today are already doing and, and how does that differ? Because a lot of this, for this to work well, um, whether it's RegTech that's doing it, whether it's uh, the Genome Project that's doing it, you know, it really relies upon the ability to for machines to understand the context of the regulation and the information that it's um, recording, especially outside of countries like the US where you don't really have, uh, well, you don't have a rules-based approach to regulation. So it's not very clear cut all the time. Um, and it's not so easy to kind of feed instructions into a system. So it's, I think it's a huge challenge they must be taking on, but it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops. So the, the question I have, and I don't know again if you're best to answer, you're probably closest to this bit of the market. Does this project pose any sort of threat to any existing firms as, as vendors, or is it more, would it be a threat to say, big four or other consultancies that are normally bought in, you know, what do we do in X market? Yeah, I, I think potentially it does. I, I think um, I think there are reg techs that will um, really welcome this, this type of uh, approach to managing regulation because it will help to you know, feed the systems that they're developing, that they're building. Mm. There's a lot of software that would benefit hugely from being able to consume, you know, well-structured uh, regulatory uh, content. Um, I think for those reg techs at the moment that are you know, working in this space are um, essentially trying to develop machine readable uh, regulation. 
um, yeah, I think potentially is a threat to them. But I think the question is, is that what is what is the genome project going to do that the, these reg techs haven't already explored or are yeah. trying to do? I think the fact that they're going to be, it looks like they're going to be working so closely with regulators is going to be a huge um, step forward for them. I think there's, amongst certain regulators around the world, there's already appetite to um, move towards more digital regulation and machine-readable regulation. Um, you know, the company I work for has done a lot of work around this um, uh, with a, a number of regulators recently. So it's, yeah, I think it's a really interesting time. But I do think if you're... If you're in the business of um, collecting uh, regulation and, and producing fees of that content at the moment, then yeah, this could be a potential threat to you. And with something like that, so are Cambridge going to be just providing that for free? I don't. I think it's it's. Um, I mean, University of Cambridge has launched it, but it's it isn't this like a, a breakaway? I can't remember how they word it, but it's a. Um, its own organization isn't it i mean to me it would make sense for this to be some kind of utility that you know ultimately the the world's global banks um kind of have a hand in um funding you know this in the end is something that i think will benefit you know the entire financial services industry you know being able to have a much much more efficient way of um, implementing uh, uh, regulation yeah, it's um, focusing on software companies focusing on baking that regulation into the um, uh, the business processes of of those institutions. Yeah. That's it. But it's you know value added services. Isn't it? If you've already got it, then it's okay. What do we now need to do policy wise, and what do we do operation wise, and then how do we do that well? So the, I guess it would just focus them back in on that. If this was just available, um, it says in the in the article so they've they've set up a limited company um you know regulatory genome development limited so they've got creative with that um has been formed to provide support to third parties building applications using the code and data from the genome um so it sounds like maybe it's set up as a company but maybe not as a we're going to dominate the world of this thing it's more creating a really interesting resource probably something quite interesting for the academics to work on but with the idea that others will then do something with it, like like David's just said. And it's interesting that there's quite a few um, uh, projects at the moment, the very early stages that are exploring um, the, the the use of digital regulations um, outside of the financial services, but certainly across the UK. You know, uh, uh, government have launched a, a quite a few programmes around this. You know, the energy sector is uh, looking very closely at this, and is. You know, they've actually launched quite a few projects now to digitise regulation. So I think it's, you know, th this is a theme and this is, we'll see more and more momentum here because ultimately it's those regu regulated entities that are going to benefit for this um, and the more efficient and effective ways in which they can implement those regulations, then hopefully the safer the markets are for consumers. And so in the end, it's the consumer that's the winner. Yes. And if you're from the Genome Project and want to come on and tell us we're wrong and I'm sure we've got lots of Cambridge academics that tune into us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we have at least one, actually, because there's going to be one on the show soon. Ooh. A little teaser for you there. Um, right. So, so on the agenda next, how much 
does leadership matter in regtech? So subject of the quarter, leadership. Um, examples of great leadership that we've experienced or the effect that it can have. You know, as we were talking, and knowing that this would come up, I couldn't help but think we were talking about companies that have been successful, organizations that have come and gone. Uh, and, and I was thinking that is down to leadership. So we know that leadership is important in regtech. I'm throwing the subject out to the floor to see where uh, anyone would like to go with it. See where it lands. <laughs> see where it lands. <laughs> well, I think are we are we uh, did we decide we, we might we might differentiate sales leadership within regtech. I think we to... I think we're gonna have to do one in its own right on sales yeah. leadership because I think yeah. we're gonna want to go deep on that one, aren't we? Not everyone. Yeah on uh, all of the listeners to this particular podcast might necessarily be as interested in that. But I think we can at least look at it from, um, well, we can certainly look at it from a regulatory point of view uh, and, and financial crime point of view, wherever you want to go there. And we can look at it from a regtech vendor point of view. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, from, from a vendor point of view, I mean, I think, yeah, go on, what? I mean, the history is littered with, with successes and failures, I suppose, if, if in, 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 that, um, in that regard. I mean, I, I think for me, if you're talking about a reg tech business in, 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 you know, more broadly, um, it comes back to, and if anyone is listening and wants to go back to the interview of Dean Curtis, he talks about this. Um, it's about go to market strategy. It's about creating value. You know, he, I mean, he cites, you know, various examples, I think, where, you know, you've got two organizations offering similar thing or you know or, or essentially i mean what he's what he's positing is that it's not necessarily the best solution that wins out you know that comes to dominate the market um and that is really about you know go to market strategy understanding the problem that you fix being able to articulate you know how you fix that problem and then and then and then backing that backing that up and and then in that will all come from leadership ultimately and many reg texts certainly that I'm familiar with and that you see in the market, are, I suppose, totally, completely understandably established and run by, uh, you know, people who have, you know, been very close to the topic at hand. You know, they've either, you know, been practitioners or regulators or, or whatever it might be. And, and they see a gap and they go, right, there's a gap here. I'm going to build a solution or I'm going to set something up that does this. And then it doesn't necessarily you know win out it does it's not necessarily a success and 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 that's not because their idea wasn't right that's not because the gap wasn't there um it's simply because they have failed to bridge that gap in the sense of you know fully articulating the problem that they solve really engaging with people about how they solve it and uh you know and, and talking and talking about that and backing it up so so you know it, what what am i what am i saying um you know you just that you see good and bad examples of it i mean i've i've seen it i've i've, I've worked in organizations that have had both both good and bad um and and it's a great shame when you see an organization or you're in an organization that has got you know that does fix a problem or has a super solution but the organization more widely simply can't get out of its own way to you know to describe the problem properly to engage properly to, to build a proper GTM strategy that 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 takes that takes that forward. Well, so, so interesting. We've got two people 
on this podcast right now that I would say works at companies that are in reg tech, that kind of like byword for the guys that got it right in the early days, right? So so I think WorldCheck and Complinet mm. um, are, are two examples that, that, um, that well, we, I, uh, I we would, often talk I about, would, right? So, in, in, in defense of our friend, Tom, I would argue that RDC largely got it got it right as well. Oh, certainly, certainly, in, absolutely. In, I, 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 I consider later. them of a different era. I consider them of a different era is the only reason I didn't. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. But I, mean, I am actually. I mean, look, you know, don't don't write in, but I am often astonished still at quite how quickly RDC jumped from, particularly in Europe, nothing. You know, nobody yeah. had heard of that, and uh, you know, to to a brand and a solution that's used by some of the biggest players, you know, I mean, that's, um, you know, still in the face of WorldCheck, Dow Jones, Thompson, yeah. you know, problem, you know, and they got right in there. Okay. Well, what, how did they do it? So why were they able to do it? <laughs> what are we talking about? Leadership, right? Well, yeah. Um, do you think about, I mean, Rob, you were there before I was, and I, I came out, so our times overlapped, but, um, out of interest, who introduced you guys to that amazing company? Oh, I think that was Clark <laughs> White. I think that was Clark White. Sponsors the show, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yeah, a fantastic uh, recruitment company that every red egg texture jeans. Um, is it, yeah, as Rob said, it was leadership, but I think there's there two different sources. It, it played quite nicely, in my opinion, looking back and the way you've just framed it, is you had leadership team out of the states who are very very good they're very focused they knew what they wanted to do and knew what they wanted the company to be so there was a clear clear direction but then what they did which i think was really clever is they hired rupert derug you know friend of the show friend of the people on this show um who had already done this at dow jones and had a much more sort of um you know i suppose a british approach you know a little bit more understated a little bit more sensitive to the you know, European market sensibilities, etc. And he was able to take sort of the American management team's goals and drive and ambition and focus, and then translate that into you know a small but very effective team. And he brought in people that knew what they were doing, like Rob, like like Craig, who, who's you know a friend of everyone on the call, um, and you know obviously worked with you, Tom, to find. Uh, people that needed some training up like me <laughs> so, and, and, I, I, and I just copied whatever Rob said for a year and then I, and then I you know, found my feet but um yeah I think the people involved there were the, were the key I mean there, there was a good strategy there was you know a good product and everything else but if you ha didn't have those people arguably it wouldn't wouldn't have gone on to do the things it's done what do you remember David of um your your time at Complinet in the early days back then because i mean that must have been interesting right some mm. sort of visionaries there and yeah we were good i mean obviously our we, we tend to think of in terms of you know what it was like in the sales department but i think that when you look across the whole business and particularly at, at complement there was really strong leadership uh, in that business and i think when you you know if ever you talk to um any of the guys that were you know, the, the regulatory affairs team, for example, you know, they'll all talk really highly of, uh, you know, Chris Pilling, CEO there, who really had, uh, you really felt that he had the best interests for, for the business and for everyone in it. Uh, people were very clear on, you know, what they're expected to do. 
um, certainly for us in, in uh, working at the London office, you know, we had, I, I would say it was one of the best kind of working environments, you know, I've, I've been in. And that's before the days of people wheeling uh, uh, ping pong tables into the office. You know, we, we had um, you know, good, good people to work uh, alongside. You had uh, great support around the business. Um, you had a sense of having good uh, leadership in place. And you know that ultimately the CEO and everyone at the kind of exec level um, was really looking out for us and that we really understood we had a great business. And I think it was for, for me in my um, relatively early stage of my sales career there, that was one of the times where I really used to feel genuinely that if someone didn't, if we had, if I had a prospect and they didn't buy it today, I genuinely felt that it's fine because they will buy this in the next three months, the next six months. I genuinely felt the product was that great. And I think it was because of the, really that the whole, the, the energy and the ethos that was built up within that business. But I think that what was then really important was that we were obviously acquired by Thomson Reuters. And we talked earlier about, you know, when acquisitions can go good or bad. And I think, again, all credits to the leadership um, that was in Complement was that they were really mindful of the fact that we were going into this huge organisation. I think the first, one of the first things we did was we were all flown out to um, uh, Florida for, you know, TR's annual um, sales kickoff. And suddenly we realised that, you know, we were this tiny little company. You know, we were now in amongst, I think it was something like 2,000 salespeople that were at this venue. Um, and again, I think they did a great job to kind of keep the team really focused on, on what we were doing. And it felt like it was quite a natural uh, move then into Thomson Reuters. And we started to adopt more and more of their uh, kind of working practices. And slowly but surely, um, you know, we, we gathered new leadership. But I definitely think, yeah, Complement was a great example of some really excellent leadership. Because that's, that's interesting, you see, your, your experience of moving into TR, because mine, mine I think, is, is a bit different. You see, I think, I mean, it, 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 same, same, but different. Because, I mean, exactly the same happened to us, you know, we, we, and we, we joined those massive things. And, but I think, you know, going back to what we're talking about, you know, the big, big organisations perhaps not being in a position to be as nimble and, and all. I think, I think something that, um, look, and I don't want to speak for other people, but something that we felt perhaps was, was the... <clears throat> Just to interject for anyone who's listening that doesn't know, Rob's talking about World Check. Apology. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Absolutely um yeah not not that we had our wings clipped so to speak but um but that we were now part of this enormous machine and and that we couldn't we couldn't perhaps move as quickly as we might have wanted to or um you know we couldn't do that i mean i mean you know i have memories of sort of pre-acquisition where there was sort of a round robin email sent from somebody extremely senior in the organization saying hey guys what do you think about us adding this to the data do you do you as salespeople on the ground think this would be a valuable addition? You know, <laughs> FYI, you're the guys that will decide. You know, so let us know what you think. Um, and 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 you know, based on the feedback from however many salespeople we were, it either happened or it didn't. You know, and you 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 really got that sense. And that I think that's the sort of thing that got lost for us as we moved into TR because you went into this enormous enormous machine where you were suddenly lots of layers of management in decisions like that and uh yeah so um 
So yeah, there was some of that. Yeah, there was some of that first, but I think you kind of look back and you can kind of see why that that kind of went. You know, as you kind of move oh. into such a large organisation. I mean, there was uh, we we had a particular manager who was he, he was. I think he was obviously acutely aware that he had quite a young team as well. So um, there was, you know, sometimes it felt like, you know, near constant um, conversations with us about, you know, taking on board all this new change and really kind of making sure that we really understood we were going to a very big corporate organisation now. And the expectations in terms of our behaviours were, were going to have to be a bit different. And I think he did a great job of preparing uh, a lot of people that hadn't been in that, that size of organisation before for some of the things that you were going to expect. And I think that helped quite a lot. And then he he kind of stayed, he was quite close to us for the next couple of years. And it was a good, it was nice to have that continuity, really. I thought that was really important. That was someone who was within Complinet rather than... Yeah, top, top yeah. Top that, that was Nick Lane. A lot, lot of people probably know Nick Lane, but yeah, he, yeah. He, did a, he did a great job for for our team and kind of transitioning into TR. And so, so much of anything around leadership, company leadership, sales leadership, any anything really. It's just making sure everyone can communicate. Like you were saying, Rob, if you, you're used to having the direct link into product and then mm. it's taken away and no one's explained why, it's not going to feel very good. And mm. I argue that, you know, actually sort of segueing slightly into product any, here, it's sort of um, one of the things I think in in this sector is that the companies sometimes aren't brave enough. I think everyone is very keen to do the product development thing of, I find a customer, I build for them, I then listen to the customer, I build again, I build again. And that is right. That is the right way to build something incrementally. So I'm not disagreeing, but you've also got to have a little bit of your own vision. You don't mm. have ideas in your organization. You, you don't actually have to be the one to have the ideas as the lead, as the CEO or the mm. chief something officer. Um, but if you're not actually leading the market itself to, to sort of use the word, mm. then I would imagine you'll eventually be overtaken no matter how good you are at iteration of your original idea or what the first customer told you, you're missing other opportunities. Mm. I sometimes wish that there was a little bit more of um, courage in the leadership of our sector where they're going, actually, no, we, we're pretty sure this would help resolve the issue, whether that be mm. financial crime or do it a lot more efficiently or what whatever it is so we're just going to go and do it and sometimes sometimes the market will come to you i think but obviously you've got to be able to um yeah you've got to have leaders that are willing to take that risk and that that, that's what it comes down to yeah and i I, but i think the 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 sort of the the, the follow-up to that you know an integral part of that is that go-to-market piece is that you can you can you can have the vision you can have the drive you can you can have the will to build the thing but you then also have to have or bring in, recognize you don't have it and bring it in. Yeah. That ability to, and then listen to those people who yeah. you bring in, um, don't hire them and then not listen to them. Uh, that, that go to market strategy, that, you know, great. Look, what, we, what you guys have built is amazing. This is fantastic. This is really, you know, this is, but this is how we need to communicate it. This is what we need to do to take it to market. This is what, you know, that's, and the, you know, back to what Dean was saying, it's, it's the people who, mm. the people who do that more effectively are the people who will win out. You can have the, you can have the best product and come third. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, um, to go back to some of the other 
Reg Tech Legends interviews, Tom, you did. There's the line from um, Charlie saying, you know, if I was going to back a company, I'd just do it with someone who's done it before. And I kind yeah. of think that applies to this. You know, obviously there is space for new people and they always, always need new people to come into a sector. But when it comes to that go-to-market strategy, I think there's a small defined pool and that is who you need to go and get. I mean, that was, uh, that was my experience working for Rupert originally. And, and then I've worked for other people that have been, been great as well and learned lots from, et cetera. But consistently you see some of these people that are doing well in this sector. They seem to have gone and found someone who sometime in the last 10 years has already done it or 10, mm -hmm. 20 years has done it. Again, I don't know if you guys would disagree, agree, or if you've see, seen anyone that maybe has come in totally raw and just done it amazingly, but I can't think well, of I mean, what, what we've got, I mean, the, 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 we've got, we've got an interesting combination, I think, at, at Encompass, um, Wayne, Wayne and, uh, Wayne and Roger, um, who founded the business, they founded businesses before they've, mm. they've, they've, and they've worked together before. Um, and then they've come into this particular sector and founded the business in this sector off the back of being themselves victims of financial crime. Yeah. On a massive scale. Um, so that's really, you know, that, that creates a super, you know, um, not just drive, but also kind of feeling within the organization because they really have a, a sort of an underlying passion to, 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 to help and to fix some of these problems because they, you know, they were, they were, they were enormous victims of it, of it themselves. So, um, so yeah, it's good. But yeah, I mean, drive, drive, I mean, like, I suppose anybody who sets up a company is going to be quite driven. Right. But, um, you know, you talk about RDC and, and what, what sort of took RDC or started RDC on that enormous climb was, you know, was Tom Obermeyer. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, the guy, the guy was just, um, just on it like 24 seven, um, really was lived and breathed it. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a force of nature and, um, you know, real, um, very singular character, but, um, you know, RDC wouldn't be where it is without, without him dragging it forward. I'd also probably give a shout to um, the other Tom because there was there's Tom Overmeyer, oh, the guy, and then you had Tom Fogarty who kind of gave it the um, knew how to execute and and set up teams that would execute. No, which absolutely. is your, which is to Dean's point, right? If you don't get that bit right, it doesn't really matter. But it's it's the combination. But, Definitely, um, and one and one of the things that I've I've sort of appreciate appreciate about Fogarty in in retrospect, I must say, because I found it hugely frustrating at the time as a salesperson is what you were talking about, sort of iterations, you know, developing the product, building the product out. And because of course, you know, being on the front line and, and having a, you know, a customer who was sort of very demanding and wanting this and that all the time, and they want it yesterday. Um, you know, Fogarty would also, would always be, you know, he would always be thinking, hang on a second, you know, is this scalable? How do we scale that? Does that add to the overall capability of the product that we are trying to deliver to everybody? And, and he would often push back and go, no, I'm not doing it, you know, or, you know, not now or not yet or not, you know, and, um, you know, that could be hugely frustrating. But of course, in retrospect, he was absolutely right. Every single, and I've told him, I'm glad to say, you know, <laughs> I hasten to add, you know, absolutely right every time. Because if, if you can't, if what you're building can't scale, can't, you know, particularly in, I think, in the market that we're working in, right, yeah, where, you're, yeah. you know, really you're trying to sell the same thing to everybody um over and over and over again uh you know you can't spend a lot of time you know you know wanting to sort of tinker with things and 
Um, if you run into a dead end, then it's very, very tough for all those people in the go-to-market organisation you've stood up to stay. Yeah. Because they've got to have somewhere to grow and they've got to have mm. accounts that they can grow and they've got to yeah. do these things, otherwise someone will have them off you. And you and you end up in that death spiral of, well, who are we? What do we do? And you don't know anymore because you've diversified so much. What, what, what do you think of a smaller organisation at the moment? Obviously, you've done you know, big, well, big, I th- small. Yeah, I, I think to Rob's point is uh, absolutely correct, isn't it? It's really important that, especially in the early days when resources are quite constrained as well, is that the, the organisation's really focused on, you know, core proposition and whilst there's loads of distractions and you know i'm as guilty as anyone for you know you kind of see something flashy over there and you think oh actually we could we could solve that problem for you and we could solve that problem as well but you you need that level of leadership to kind of you know keep everyone focused and that's not just to keep your sales team focused that's to keep product and and everyone that's involved in um you know developing that proposition for the future um, albeit hopefully with a mind to build out further capabilities, et cetera. But I think that that's a real skill in itself, being able to not be drawn down every avenue that comes up just because it looks like it could be some revenue down there. Um, mm-hmm. And there's you know, some companies that kind of do fall foul of that and they run into those problems exactly as you just said, you know, they run into dead ends or they get themselves involved in things that actually is a bit outside of their expertise and capability or in the end just requires so much investment to uh, uh, complete that it, it kind of gets dropped and therefore you end up with unhappy clients and, and unhappy staff as well mm. do you know just thinking about it is it, uh, so rdc tom obermeyer he was um he was he not a first-time ceo as in he'd come straight from uh the one of the banks from banking so i think that he'd been a chief compliance and risk officer at you know major global banks so he's yeah. with the absolute sort of pinnacle of sub- subject matter expertise i guess um but yeah, wildly think... different from a you know yeah. relatively um small technology business technology and data business mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and then um complement so chris pilling was he a first time ceo at that point first uh, time i time think so yeah 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 mm-hmm. um but- and Wilczek, David Pan, first well, time David, founder. David, David, of course. Yeah, David, son of Wilczek. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Actually, that's... they were all first time founders. <laughs> yeah, do you think it matters, though, if it's first time CEO, if you've led before? You know, leadership is leadership regardless of the title. I, I agree with that. You know, I think I think trying to the only reason I actually mentioned that was that you said about um, what Charlie had said. You know, if if you're looking at the odds, the easiest thing would be to back someone who's done it before. Yeah, and that's probably true, right? Um, that's probably true, uh, but but it seems to me that there must be traits that you could unpick of those that, have, that all those names that we've just mentioned that that have allowed them to do it despite not having done it before, per se. Are there any you throw out, Tom? Because you're the one that you know finds senior successful. People. I was going to say, what do you what do you think? You're the guy on the uh, you're the guy on the HR personnel side. <laughs> yeah, the front line of all of these leaders, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, so so you, uh, David, said something that really resonated with me when he was talking about Chris Pilling. It was like he was genuinely best uh, had the best interests of the company and genuinely had um, the best interests of the team at heart. Mm. And I think there's something there that is at the crux of uh, of everyone that I think I look at and say like this person 
this man or woman, I feel like, uh, you know, it embodies what I think about when I, I think of a, a good leader. And they can come in all different shapes and forms and personality types. But I think if you've got someone who's genuinely got the best interests of um, the team and the company at heart, and that informs how they interact with those people, that's what normally differentiates them. And so, so sort of, you you have a lot of people that have watched a, uh, or listened to like a Simon Sinek, uh, you know, talk about leadership. And so they end every sentence with, and how can I help you? Uh, mm. You know, but it sounds very sort of, um, it just just doesn't doesn't seem genuine, right? But if you genuinely care, you you seek the truth, you seek um, the best way forwards. And so when someone comes to you with an idea that is opposed to you to yours, for example, um, your instant reaction isn't to say no and try and assert your authority or or be fearful that they are going to steal your um, your thunder in some way, but it is to to explore that and find out if there's sort of nuggets of information there. So. So relating that to, to maybe RDC, I would imagine that the um, the marketplace that you were tackling at RDC in that around, what was it, two, sort of 2013 or something when they, 2013, 14, when they were opening up that London office, yeah. you know, that, that must have been very different for Rupert to the one that he had left. Um, you know, uh, the the beginning of that journey at Dow Jones was probably around the early, early noughties, wasn't it? You know, what are you stepping into that was wildly different there? But but I absolutely believe someone like Rupert is going to be, um, you know, is going to listen and be thoughtful about the advice that they're receiving from people when he receives it and, and sort of act accordingly. Yeah. And I, I think that's it. If you genuinely care and you're genuinely interested, that has a, like a, a that that influences the way that you behave and and it's it's actually the way that you behave and respond to those outside influences that ultimately um uh, mean that you either pivot well or not and, and and therefore are successful or not do you think that do you think some of those things or any of those things change uh small company to big company um the only reason i say that is because i my my experience of smaller companies is very much sort of the one that you and David have spoken about, where you know you've you've got a you've got a manager who 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 you know you really you know who really does care about you and the team because I mean ultimately you know he wants you to all be successful and everything. In a bigger organisation, I wonder. I mean, I've certainly I mean I've seen examples of this happen where you know there are clearly other pressures at play on the team leader or the manager, and that perhaps forces that person's hand in how they have to behave or a decision that they'd have to take that they might not otherwise have taken were it left to them alone you know and and i wonder if there's bigger as you get more politics involved and you know wider pressures sort of different pressures i wonder if then it's possible to still be that person or whether there's just whether it's just a bigger game i don't i don't know but i actually think that's the skill of Certainly, the big bigger the company, the better the or the more skillful the leader arguably has to be in terms of mm. not, might have the same traits as someone in a small company, but you need more skill because there's more moving parts. But is that if you've done your job right, then in theory, everyone should be incentivized and being sort of um, presented with the path forward and it should all be aligned. It's when you've set things up in such a way that people are going to clash. Mm. people are going to clash people are competitive people want to win people want to further themselves 
um, in their careers. But if you've actually set up the incentives right and the game, you know, if you've made the rules right, then it actually should all go in the right direction. And then when you find an, you know, an issue where it, that isn't the case, you should then solve it. It's when people go, well, it's just the way it is. Mm. <laughs> it's like, well, that's lazy leadership. That's yeah, completely. Leadership. completely. Yeah. yeah. I would argue it is more important in a big company to embody the values that you're trying to instill in your business, right? Because um, because you're you're much less likely to have direct contact tact with someone you know except for example a salesperson at the coalface mm. um, and so the only way that you can influence whether or not they're being managed uh in the way that are in line with the values that you want to set for that business is to um uh effectively have been an example of that for your for the mm. for those that report into you so that they can be that for those that report into them if you see what i mean yeah, I, think, so, right. so I guess there's like a there's a messaging thing, isn't there, and a consistency of behaviour and messaging that's even more important in a big company. It's that consistency, isn't it? Because I think as an employee, that's what you want to see. So if you're if you're if you're seeing in the you know official company messaging and you're seeing um, you know uh, that specific values are being called out for the organisation, then you expect that all the levels of leadership then above you are communicating and showing those values as well. Yeah. The frustration comes when it all seems to be a bit BS when, okay, so what, what I hear every quarter when the CEO is rolled out, he says all this stuff, but in reality, I don't see any of that on the ground. And that yeah. when I have my one-to-one with my manager, I get the, the laser response, hey, it is what it is, you know, that, that's where everything falls apart. So really what- Take it or leave it, David. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's really where you need to have that, that consistency that, that runs all the way through so that yeah. hopefully in a really well-functioning team, you know, you have uh, people that are well aligned that embody similar values and that ultimately are focused on solving you know, the, the same challenges, whether they're internal or external. Um, and, and there's obviously a, a, a lot of work uh, that needs to be done in order to, to manage that and make sure that that actually happens. And the bigger the organisation, no doubt, the, the bigger the challenge there is to make that happen. Probably a separate um, podcast or a part of a separate podcast. You know, but you start to go into the culture and you go, right, yeah. well, you can... I saw saying the other day, that some you know, connection or connection or whatever, but they're going, oh, we changed our culture over the last, you know, week. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> you know, no, you didn't. I don't know who you are. I don't really know what your company's about, but telling me you did a bunch of stuff with some consultant, does it, you might have set a goal for a culture yeah. you want to have, but culture is what you do consistently. Yes, exactly. And if what you do consistently is, then things are going well, we tell everyone that we're living our mission and blah, blah, blah. And then when things are a bit, you know, squeaky bum time at the end of a quarter, we go just get the deal in don't worry about any of that then you don't have a culture yeah <laughs> and you yeah. thought that's fairly obvious yeah. but people under pressure it falls apart very quickly unless it's you really prioritize that and said our process is more important than our outcome mm. you know because that's that's what it comes down to you you can always be sure of your effort and you know if or you can as an individual but sometimes outcomes have external variables and those are the mm. The thing that you need your leaders to then accept that and or show you ways to mitigate them or whatever but um yeah i just i find it funny when people maybe they, they've read the book but not uh not yeah. need it. that's so true and this is i mean we are going to have to do a separate episode on this but but so we, we've 
the contact that we have with companies every day. We, we, uh, if you're hiring correctly, you will be looking to hire people that embody the values that you look to um, uh, kind of uh, maintain in your business. Um, and it's really interesting when people start talking about values that you just know that that, that leader is not embodying themselves. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, essentially that is doomed to fail. <laughs> in that situation so i mean there that is uh definitely um so, 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 worthy podcast right there well and, and and that's maybe a one-to-one that one of us needs to do with you because that's fascinating right i mean how do you that's a com that must be a difficult conversation for you right with with with, the, with your with your client uh 100 percent. yeah mm. yeah it is yeah sorry sorry mr ceo uh you know this isn't going to go very well or and there are, so so what's interesting you you can't just turn around to to someone and say like i don't believe that you currently embody this that and the other but but what we do is we try and um show through data some some things that might um allow them to draw certain conclusions themselves that we can then uh, sort of bake into the um into the recruitment process mm. um so so yeah I think uh, there are subtle ways of getting a message across. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one ever stays here more than six months. That's yeah. Interesting, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Our sales reps after, after, yeah, after a few months. Hmm, yeah, why is why? that then? They were all rubbish. You use a different recruitment term. Never again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, On that bombshell, did you want to maybe talk about the book club well so i think we're gonna this is something that we we want to start doing moving forwards isn't it so review some um uh well essentially do a book club but we're gonna do book reviews on uh reg tech and associated uh subjects and i think the the first one that we're going to cover is money land and i don't know where did we land are we are we we're going to do that now or are we just gonna we're gonna we're gonna tease it for now Rob, I know Rob's really passionate about it. So, Rob, I don't know if you want to give a little bit of a yeah on Moneyland. I've, I've read it recently and can give my two pence, but then I thought maybe we could do a proper thing next. Yeah, week. sure. Well, I mean, look, we I mean we don't need to give too much away, do we? Um, I mean, aside fr- from from to say, look, if anyone is interested, you know, M- Moneyland by by Oliver Bullo, um, look it up, or we can put a link in and, and, and you can access that or you may you may have heard it before yeah and then and then what we'll we'll i'm gonna know, what... i'm gonna buy it we encourage everyone else there to buy it absolutely we hear things about it and hopefully when, potential and friend mr. of the show <laughs> when <laughs> mr bullo yeah when mr bullo accepts our invitation and comes on we can uh, we can give him a royalty check or whatever um but uh but yeah no super, superb book and and i mean essentially what he's talking about in a nutshell um, is you know what he describes as Moneyland is this place where uh, you know um, p- pilfered assets and ill-gotten gains from all around the world are basically spirited away um, through the modern financial system um, in such a way as that you know they effectively do not land anywhere uh, and and you know he goes into great detail on this and particularly and I think what I find so interesting and what so many people other fi- so many other people find affects them about the book are the examples that he uses to show how you know this is effectively in in many many cases 
you know, taxpayers' money or the money of people, particularly of poorer nations, that has been spirited away by corrupt officials, meaning that the people of those countries don't have the money that they need for schools, roads, books, medicines, and and, and you name it. Um, effectively, you know, a bit of you know, my bit of history. I mean, I, th- I think what Oliver says is that it, you know, he sees this all starting in the sixties with the launch of the euro bond, um, which was for the first time the financial instrument that basically allowed people to hold money in this way where it was not, um, you know, it was essentially not tied down anywhere, you know, prior to that, um, you know, as he, as he explains, you know, this money would sit in, you know, anonymous Swiss bank accounts, but of course it couldn't be enjoyed there because it was in a, it was in a bank account and that's where it was. And and, and to spend it was, was difficult. So, you know, the, the advent of the Euro bond allowed people to then start moving this money around the world and benefiting from it. Um, at the same time as, as, as having it. Um, so, yeah, look, super, super book, fascinating read, you know, fascinating topic. Oliver's a, you know, very, very interesting person. And, um, you know, yeah, great read. So, so yes, I mean, you know, Alex, you probably want to, well, having read it recently, but, but um, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think if you're in this sector, you should 100% read it. If you're a practitioner and you haven't read it, you should definitely read it because kind of make sell some give you a bit of a structure to think through everything that we're doing day to day rather than thinking about this deal or that problem it's actually what's the the bigger thing that you're chipping away at um and i think what he does quite a nice job we've put the politics aside of it and you know i've I've got a horrible habit where i'll look up criticism of whatever book i'm reading because i'm otherwise i'm far too easily influenced and so i need to have both opinions um but put put aside the the politics of it um I think what he does quite a nice job of saying is this isn't necessarily, there wasn't like one big conspiracy or corruption. It's there's a little bit of intelligent design between each component part of this, but over the years it has spun up into this massive, you know, fictional place that, that, that where money can exist. So it's fictional in terms of it's not physical, but it exists. And you then start to go, right, well, how do you solve for that? Well, it's through really good KYC proper AML, proper use of compliance and technology. And we won't get there tomorrow or the next day or next week, but the only way you'll start to chip away at that is to get this stuff right. And as we all know, there's there's lots of firms that are still fairly um, immature on that process. So there's loads of work to do to get them up to a point. And then, you know, the next innovation can come and you keep going and no doubt there'll be people also trying to go the other way. But it, it does give you a little bit of um, bit of meaning to to what you're trying to do, mm. uh, particularly in my new world of you know corporate ownership information and everything that I'm I'm learning about there. But what I mean, without without wanting to sort of start the book review already, I mean, what, to your point, Alex, it is it is bigger picture, and it's not just about what what practitioners are doing or what we're doing. You know, he he also sort of you know talks about governments and like the system, and yeah. I mean. One, one example, and, and, and it's, as you say, it's, it's not one sort of, there wasn't one big bang. It's this creep, creep, creep of, of, of stuff. And, and the, the abuse of instruments that were sort of, you know, totally innocent. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, Scottish LLPs, for example, are like one of the big, I mean, they would, they would like, I think, I think the sort of the biggest uh, element of the, uh, of the Danska laundromat. Um, were, were Scottish L, Scottish, you know, the use of Scottish LLPs, and they were originally set up to 
do something for like Scottish crofters or something, I think, was their original design intention. Yeah. And they've just been they've just been sort of completely abused in order to um, to, to to facilitate money laundering. Um, have we lost our host? We have, but he's kindly made David the host. So I guess we can wrap. Um, and just... <laughs> if, you, if you haven't given away all the spoilers, we'll obviously discuss this more at length. But I, I haven't read it, so I, I need to read it ahead of our, uh, our session yeah. on this. Yeah. yeah. I think we'll, it does sound fascinating. Yeah, we'll be back in June, I guess, or, or maybe um, start of July for a Q2 wrap up, but we'll we'll do a part of either separately or as part of that, we'll, we'll go into a few of the more interesting cases. Well, we'll leave it for Tom to add his bit on the end of this, I think. <laughs> yeah, he'll wrap, he'll wrap it up and clean it off nicely for us. Yeah, that was great. Thanks very much, Tom. Yeah, See you cheers. next time, Tom. Super stuff. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks very much.